Well, before we start, I actually just wanted to pray really quick for, um, uh, there's a couple that's been coming to our church, and they have a bunch of kids. You might know Emily and Chris. Well, um, Neilani actually was in a pretty um, kind of scary experience in a bus in Fall River that apparently she just got hurt. There was some kind of like, you know, erratic movements and stuff in the bus, and she's in the hospital right now. She's okay, but she has a concussion. And I just wanted to pray for her real quick, if you don't mind, okay? God, we just want to come to you and ask you for the health of um, uh, little Neilani. We love her. Um, no doubt her parents are afraid and um, highly alarmed by the situation that happened. God, I pray, Lord, that you would just protect her, help her, help Neilani to not be afraid, and I pray, God, that you would heal her quickly. Um, we just love you, and we, we consider um, all the, you know, the other people that are in, in this church that have dealt with um, just various situations recently, too. We, we continue to remember um, just Brother Jim, who, um, is, who remains in the hospital, God. And we just ask you, Lord, that um, we thank you, first of all, that there, that have, there have been some good reports and um, there's been some progress made. And we just ask, Lord, that it would continue in that direction, that we would see him back here soon. Uh, and, God, we just continue to remember also uh, Sister Carla, um, who lost her mom last week. Um, we just thank you for her life and um, her love for you and also for her family. I pray that you would just continue to comfort them as they grieve. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, good morning. It's so good to see everybody. Um, we're, in, um, we're continuing our sermon series um, through the book of 1 Peter that's entitled Life After Loss. So if you're kind of new here or you're just picking up this, um, there's, a, there's a New Testament letter. It's a book in the New Testament. It's called 1 Peter. And we've been going through this because it deals with a lot of um, basically the trials of life and the hope that we can find uh, through those trials. Um, as we introduced the sermon series some weeks ago, I don't know if you remember, but we, re we um, talked about what can be the normal, the, the normal progress of trauma or trial. There basically is there the event, the traumatic event. And these come to us all, I think, at some point in our lives to varying degrees, but there's the, evatic, the, the traumatic events, the trial, the loss, whatever it might be. And then there's the subsequent um, affecting of trust uh, um, that affects our trust in, or, or our personal insecurities or fears. Um, because this event happened, now we're, we're left with our own personal emotions and how to deal with it and cope with it. And following that kind of that insecurity that, that takes a hit in us, that this produces a certain trigger, a certain behaviors um, that we respond to when we have to deal with feeling the pain of that loss and also the fear that maybe might come along with it. So we experience the loss, which is the trauma, and whatever the form it might be, we're pushed to some form of insecurity um, we no longer trust. So for example, if we're abused as a child, that's the traumatic event, we might become insecure where we no longer feel safe. Uh, perhaps we don't trust authority. Things like this could happen, right? We don't trust men or women. We have a certain fear or anxiety that because of this traumatic event gets put into our backpacks and we have to carry it around for the rest of our lives. So it feels like. Now to deal with that, to deal with the memory of the trauma and also the resulting insecurity, we develop behaviors. I'm calling them the triggers. Um, we develop certain behaviors, coping mechanisms, right? They're ways of thinking 
or behaviors that deal with the loss of the past, but also they sort of protect us from it happening again to us, right? These are our triggers, our behaviors. So we might start drinking excessively to numb um, the pain of a loss or a feeling of insecurity. We don't want to feel like that, so we might, very simply, we might just start drinking ex excessively. We might enter into various relationships or maybe even seek marriage to, to prove to ourselves that we're loved. Maybe the traumatic event was that someone left us, they divorced us, and now we're insecure. So we need to be married. That's the trigger. That's the behavior that proves to us that we're lovely, that we're loved, that we're safe, you see? So this is kind of what can happen to us as people throughout our lives. We sort of become intoxicated by our traumas and our trust issues. And we begin, in, we begin to manage life almost exclusively to deal with the residual pain of that traumatic event. Does that make sense? In a very clear statement, Peter tells us about how to deal with our losses and with the subsequent fears that follow. Rather than choose the behaviors or triggers that we so often choose, he gives us a different medication, a different solution. He tells us to set our hope and to have minds fully alert and sober. Set our hope on the appearing of Christ, he says, and to have minds fully alert and sober. That's what we read in our scripture. Now, if you recall, last week, and if you weren't here last week, just, just know this. The verses um, preceding this just dealt with how people, how they, the, the letter that he's writing, the people receiving this letter, had just gone through all these harrowing events and losses and griefs, that they had been experiencing immense trial. So he just finished dealing with both traumas and the subsequent resulting insecurities that come along with a trauma. He made clear that not only are Christians sinners, so he's talking to people who have failed and made mistakes just like all of us, but he's talking to people that have gone through various kinds of truffle, to, of trial, suffering, and grief. Can you say amen to that if you've been there? I know I have. These are people, like all of us at some point in our lives, who have been traumatized. Some people more than others. Some of us, for some reason, seem to get dealt a hand that is just more challenging and more heavy and more difficult than others. So he's acknowledging this. He's saying, you've been through, through all this. You've been through these losses and these griefs. You've been through these emotions. But, he says to them, you have been born again. You're a new person. You're a Christian. That's his audience that he's writing to. That means that they're forgiven. Anything that they failed in or was their fault is gone. It's buried. They're now identified not as who they used to be, but who they are now. Not by their pains or their losses or their suffering, but who they are now and what God has promised them because of who they are now. So this new identity is the answer to the insecurities that are the result of past suffering. Okay, That new identity, our deepest needs, will always be met in Jesus Christ. Every single person has deep heart needs to be loved, to be safe, and to be important. Right? Don't we all want that? We want to be loved, we want to be safe, and we, we want to be important. 
And Jesus Christ, because of the gospel, loves you immensely, protects you forever, and glorifies you with his own glory, marking your great importance. So we don't need to evaluate ourselves anymore through the lens of past trauma or even failures that we made, mistakes that we made. So Peter now tells us how to deal with our unhealthy and sometimes dangerous triggers that were part of our own ways, old ways of dealing with pain and fear. He says, okay, you used to deal with it like this, but here's how you deal with past loss. Here's how you deal with the current insecurity and fear that might be carried along with it. Our new medication, our new coping mechanism, our new trigger, he says, is a fixed hope. A fixed hope that is only fixed because we have a sober mind. A sober mind. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many people in this room have ever been very intoxicated? (laughs) A hand went up. I won't tell you who it was. It was Daisy. (laughs) What's in that bottle, Daisy? Well, if if you've ever been there, you know what, it, what I mean when I say sober. You see, Scripture says, have a sober mind. But he's not talking to drunkards. He's talking to grievers. Grief has a way of intoxicating you. Grief has a way, suffering, trial, loss, has a way of intoxicating us so that we don't really see the truth anymore. We become driven by the fear of the trauma. You see? So Peter says, if you want a sober mind, you need a fixed hope. You need to see things as they really are, not as they used to be. Friends, don't old fears, even as Christians, tend to sneak back into our thinking. Old insecurities that we thought were gone um, when we came to faith in Christ sometimes kind of curve around on us again at some point in life. So the habit for the Christian is to live with a sober mind and to have a fixed hope. Peter reminds us, be sober, be alert. See things as they are. You need to be ready to answer the lies that we all believe about God and about ourselves. He says, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Now this is fantastic. And I hope that you can get this um, by the end. Okay? Last week, we described a word, inheritance. Inheritance in Scripture is basically heaven for the believer. It's being in God's presence. That's heaven. Being in the presence of God. The result of being in the presence of God on our emotions and our, on our bodies is rest. The heavens are described as a place of rest for God's people. That's our inheritance. That's the rest of heaven. Sins are forgiven. Love is complete. Right? You're no longer looking for it. It's finally fixed and settled in your, in your loving relationship with God in heaven. It's all, and you're completely safe with him in his presence. There's no more anxiety. There's no more working. There's no more, remember we said last week, there's no more, why didn't they say hello to me in church? They said hello to the person right on it, right? There's, not, there's no more of that. You're resting, right? That's the rest of, of heaven. So last week we described 
that inheritance of heaven promised to anyone who has put faith in Jesus Christ. That's heaven. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. Our aim was to describe last week what is the rest of that paradise, and we've described it in several different ways. Peter now instructs us as we continue to wrestle with our own trauma and our own trust and triggers. He says, fix your minds on the coming of heaven, but not just the coming of heaven, but how heaven is coming. He's saying that there's an event that is yet to come that you need to fix your eyes on. If you're going to have stability, if you're going to heal from past grief and trauma, there is a future event as Christians that you need to focus yourself on daily. And that is, very simply, the second coming of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is coming again. If I said to you, I got a million bucks for every person in this room, right? Right, I'm, I'm Oprah. I got a gift. Everyone that's come to church gets a million dollars. What would your first question likely be? Well, how do I get it? What, what do I need to do? Do I need to fill out a thing? How do you know I'm here, right? All these questions will immediately, you want to know how to go at it. How do I get this money? I might say to you, well, when, um, when I die, you're going to receive it, like a trust, right, or an inheritance. You'll get it then. Or maybe it's, it's based on your age, when you're 18 or 30 or 50. You're going to want to know what's the occasion of actually receiving this money, right? Wouldn't you? I would. I'd want to know that. Well, when we talk about heaven, when we talk about heaven's rest, an eternal rest with God in heaven, where there is no pain or suffering, how, what it, how is it introduced to us? The Bible's answer comes to us right here. We, at, we might ask the same question about heaven and eternity. When does it come to us? How does it come to us? What are the events surrounding its coming? Peter quite generally says, fix your eyes on the appearance of Christ. He is coming back. Because when he comes, he brings heaven with him for his people. Unfortunately, friend, when he comes, if you're not found in Christ, he brings justice. He brings separation. And it is so needless. You don't need to remain in your sin. You can come to him and trust him right now and have it all forgiven so that when he comes, you're not met with a judge, but you're met with a father. So come to Christ. But for God's people... They're instructed to fix their eyes on the coming of Jesus Christ, that he comes with his reward with him. That reward is not a big pile of money. It is perfect relationship with him. So this morning, I want to help you fix your eyes on this. I want to help us sober up our minds. Because our minds get so intoxicated with our fears, don't they? I want us to try to have a sober mind this morning. I want us to try to fix our eyes on something so much more important and beautiful than whatever else they have been distracted with. There are four events that are yet future that will mark the beginning of heaven. Okay? There are four events that are yet future that will mark the beginning of heaven. Now, I know this might kind of like incite some questions because these are future events. What, what have happened to people who have died already? And those are good, they're good questions and they're good answers to those questions. It's just not the, the topic today. But when we talk about heaven, there are four things that are yet to, ha to have happened. The first one is the second coming of Christ, Christ's return. 
The second is the resurrection of the dead, God's people. The third is the judgment, where God finally, once and for all, judges sin and separates it from him. And, and the fourth is the coronation, that, that, that's the crowning of the Lord Jesus Christ, where, where all of the earth looks to him and proclaims that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Okay? These are the four things that when Christ comes, well, excuse me, the three things that when Christ comes, these are the events that surround the second coming of Christ. The resurrection of God's people, the judgment, and the coronation, the crowning of Jesus, and his bride, by the way. That's his church. That's me and you. We get crowned too. No charge for that one. When Peter says, fix your hope on the coming of Christ, now that's all he says to us in our verses. But when we read the Bible in its entirety, that's, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the return of Jesus, the resurrection of God's people, the coming judgment, the, the, the end of all sin and evil, and the coronation of Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's saying, fix your hope on these things. Fix your hope on this. Now today, we're only going to deal with the second coming of Christ. In a couple of weeks, I'm going away, but when I come back, we're going to deal with the rest of these things. So today I want to talk about the actual event that Jesus Christ is returning. What does this mean? And friends, it's important for us to remember that as we meditate on these things, these serve as medicine for us as Christians to our weary souls, to our battered lives that have been often abused by trauma and trial. These serve as medicine for us, as perspective. We're told to fix our eyes on these things, to have sober minds in these things. These are what prepare us for heaven. These, are the prep- these events are the things that give us hope and answers and life to life's greatest questions and problems. Now these events happen prior to our introduction to eternal life. They're a, um, <clears throat> they're a preparation, if you will. The capstone events of all of these events, remember we mentioned the judgment, the coronation, and whatnot, the thing that introduces it, the capstone event of all of these events, is the, res- the, the return of Jesus Christ when he comes, the second coming of Christ. The Bible teaches quite clearly and quite often that Jesus is coming back. Now, friends, I know that there are people in here this morning that might be new to Christianity, that you might not even really know much about Jesus except for the fact that there are people out there, crazy people like me, that believe that he died and rose again, right? That, that you might just know as little as that. Well, Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ is coming again, that that was his first coming, but there's another one. There's another one that we're waiting for, that the church is waiting for. So the Bible teaches quite clearly and quite often that Jesus Christ is returning. And oftentimes, if you read the Bible, uh, especially in the Old Testament, it predicts this. It predicts the coming of Christ, but it predicts it in two different ways. The first way it predicts Christ's coming is as a suffering Messiah, a suffering lamb, the lamb of God. Isaiah 53 most clearly describes that brutal reception of Jesus. Remember, by his stripes we are healed. He talks about the coming of Christ as being one where he dies and he's tortured and he suffers. And by this suffering, we're healed. Our sins are forgiven, right? So that coming is in Isaiah 53. But in other places in the Old Testament, for example, in Zechariah chapter 14, he comes as a warrior, As a conqueror, 
He takes the earth back. By the way, if you read the Gospels, all of the, peop- the Jewish people that knew Scripture were thinking he was coming like that Jesus. And when he didn't do that for them, you know what they did to him? They crucified him. They fulfilled the prophecy that he would suffer for our transgressions. You see, they didn't understand that, they, that before he came to conquer, to settle, to bring the rest that we so desire, he had to first come to purchase it, to die for it. So these events that we see of the coming Messiah and the Old Testament are two. They are two separate events. One of them has already passed. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we have a cross hanging in our, in our church. Because the first coming has happened. It's past tense for us. But there is another coming that the scripture talks about that has not happened yet. And that is what the Bible talks about when it talks about your blessed hope. The blessed hope is that Jesus Christ is coming back. So we have to understand these as two separate events. Okay, good question. I'm glad you asked it. What's he doing now? If he's coming back, if he came once, and that was some thousands of years ago, what's he doing now? This is an incredibly important question because it sets the stage for what he does when he gets here. So we have to understand, if we're going to understand the coming of Christ, we have to understand a little bit about what Jesus is doing right now and where he is. Okay, let's talk about that. The Bible tells us that after Jesus died, he resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven. Okay, we read this in Acts chapter 1. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes. So now Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He's speaking to the apostles and the disciples. He's saying, go to the ends of the earth and make disciples. So they're speaking with the resurrected Messiah. Okay? After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you have seen him go. Okay? Tells us a lot. Now, millennia have passed since this event. This was like 2,000 years ago. So what's he doing? What's he doing right now? Let's start to answer that question. This is going to be really quick. There are books written about this, and I'm going to do it for you in five minutes, maybe 10, maybe 20. Um, (laughs) The first thing, number one, Jesus, it said plainly, is in heaven. Where is he? He's in heaven. Jesus' resurrected body, remember that all the apostles touched, they felt. It wasn't fake, it wasn't a ghost. His body had resurrected from the dead, had ascended into heaven, an actual real place. The, The disciples were told that he would return in the same way. So that's where he is. Romans chapter 8 Verse 34, and many other places testify to this in Scripture. It says this in Romans, When then, who then is the one who condemns? No one. It's Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, who is at the right hand of God interceding for you. So the place that Jesus is right now is in heaven with God. Now, okay, well, what does that mean? Where is that? You know, the Bible talks about heaven um, as having spiritual bodies. I mean, it's, it's hard to really explain as like a physical and like location. Is it like 
in the center of the earth, is on some star. We know that it's not that. All we, we can say is that it is a real place, that it is not of this world. That's what Jesus said. It's not of this world. So you can't pinpoint it into a place in our universe, okay? But it is where Jesus' resurrected body went, um, in the presence of God in heaven. But for what purpose? Why did he ascend into heaven? Did he, is he getting some, some like much-needed me time after the crucifixion? You know, it, it did take a lot out of him, not to be, you know, um, blasphemous in the way that, in my tone, but like, is that what, is he resting? Is, is Jesus, Jesus kind of taking a break? Um, I don't think so. We're told very clearly in Scripture what Jesus is doing right now. Now, just imagine this, because Jesus Christ is active in ministry right now. He is doing something for his people and for this world right now. That means that your life is not spinning out of control. That there is a God in heaven who is over all things and in all things that has a purpose in all things. Isn't that fantastic? It's not, it's not arbitrary. It's not meaningless. If there is no God, it's purposeless, right? All of the pain of our lives is just where we, we, we live, we die, and that's it. But if there's a God in heaven who has a purpose in all things, who is going to settle all things, then we have hope. So what, what is Jesus particularly, in particularly, doing right now? Well, the first thing that we know that he's getting right now is all praise and all glory and all honor because of what he did for us. You see, it says in John chapter 17, Jesus praised this, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had before the world was. The, the most basic way that I can describe glory is applause. Jesus is getting applauded for all he is and all he's done by all angelic creatures. Okay? Philippians 2 repeats that Jesus was exalted and given a name which is above every name. He is the master. He is the one who is praised, not you and not me. It's him. Christ now sits and rules on a throne where he receives unending angelic praise, where we read in the book of Revelation, the angels sing to him and do not stop. Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You see, that is very liberating to me. You want to know why? Because sometimes I think I need to be the hero that I need to be the champion, that if something goes wrong, it's my fault, that if there's a problem in my little world, it's, it's my fault. But friend, you are not the king of the world. There is someone else who has that position already. So sit at his feet and stop trying to be awesome. Right? Understand the one who is awesome for you and it makes you awesome too because he shares his glory with you. Number three, what else is Jesus doing right now? He's sitting at the Father's right hand. We kind of mentioned all this. What does that mean? Many places in Scripture teach that the Messiah, Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Well, that's a symbol. Sitting down in Scripture is a symbol that the work to accomplish the forgiveness of sin is done. He sat down because the work is done. No one, no one else has to die for your sins. No more lambs. And he doesn't even need to die for it again. You don't need to die for it. The work is completed. 
he sits down at the Father's right hand and accomplishes the forgiveness of your sin. That means we don't come to church right now so that God will think we're really cool people and accept us to heaven. That means we don't help old ladies across the street because we fear hell and we want to go to heaven. We still do those things, but because, we do them because we're accepted. Because our destiny in eternal life is fixed by the work of Jesus Christ. So now life is a praise, it's a thanksgiving, it's not an obligation. See what I mean? So Jesus Christ sits at the Father's right hand right now because the work of redemption, the work of salvation, the work that was needed to forgive your sin and mine is finished. And all you need to do is believe, to repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ that the work is accomplished. It's also, his sitting is also a symbol of authority. Far above all rule and authority and a power and dominion and every name that is named is the place of Jesus Christ. He sits down not, because, not only because he's accomplished redemption, but also because he is looked at as the sovereign authority, the king of all things. He is given this authority. Jesus is not just a cool guy. He's not just a savior. He's not just a teacher. He is Lord. And if he is Lord, we are his people. And we need to submit and surrender to his gracious and loving rulership. So that's the third thing he's doing right now. The fourth thing is he's acting as head of his people, the church. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet. That's Jesus' feet. That's his authority, right? God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now let's think about this. You guys all have heads, right? I don't see any headless people in the room. We'd all be a little scared of you. We all have heads. What? You take care of, <laughs> you take care of yourself, right? Don't you? You know, we clip our toenails and... You know, we take showers and we iron our clothes. This is a little wrinkly. I did my best, sorry. But like, we take care of ourselves, I think, to an extent. And why do we do that? How do, well, let me, let me ask it like this. How do we do that? Our head. We don't get a mind. If we don't have a brain, we can't take care of ourselves. And friends, I'm being a little silly right now, but isn't that true? We see this happen to people when all of a sudden they can no longer think for themselves. When they have something, maybe they go into a coma or they develop Alzheimer's. They can no longer care for their own bodies anymore. But a healthy mind, a healthy head, is a head that is going to care for itself. Now, now just do, do the math with me. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything to his church. Who cares for the church? Who makes it live? Who protects it? The head, Jesus Christ. You see, friends, God has established under shepherds, under pastors, right, to shepherd, to grow the church. But you know, the, the, just the honest, bold truth is you don't need me. I could go tomorrow and Mark could take over, the other pastors could take over. You know, you know who the head of the church is? You know who we need for our life and our health and our salvation and our very existence? 
Jesus. We need him. That's why if I get nuts, you got to get rid of me. Because I'm not Jesus. I'm not your head. Jesus is. As head of the church, Christ from heaven creates us. He sends his spirit to us to save us, to help us know that we're sinners so that we come to him by faith. That's Acts chapter 1 and John chapter 15. He cares. He grooms us. He cares for his people. He grows us into his likeness. He nourishes us. He cherishes us. He gives us gifts, and he even gives us the gift of himself, his Holy Spirit. Gifts that work encouragement, teachers, etc. Power through his mystical, spiritual presence. That's Jesus' ministry right now. He is head of the church. Number five, Jesus Christ is the priest of the church. The great high priest. He intercedes as the priest of the church. what priests do. Jesus Christ is an intercessor for us in heaven at the Father's right hand. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a priest? Well, a priest in the Old Testament, very simply, is one thing. It's someone who represents man to God. Moses, for example, the, the children of Israel had sinned greatly, and God said, basically, they're toast. I'm wiping them out. They are unfaithful, they are forgetful, and they worship idols. So they're gone. Moses, it's just you and me now. And what does Moses do in the Old Testament? He prays for them. He says, God, remember your promise to save. And and So he intercedes on the behalf of the people. That's what Moses does. As time progresses in the Old Testament, that, that job description is given to the priests, the Levites, of the, the nation of Israel. They go into the, pre- it was in a tent, and they would go into the presence of God on behalf of the, of the people with a blood sacrifice. And they would, they would represent the people and say, God, this animal has died for their sins. All of this was pointing to animals can do nothing. We learn this in the New Testament. This, this, this did not establish forgiveness of sin. It just pointed to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the priest who would take his own blood into the presence of God in heaven and intercede for his people. Isn't that fantastic? You see, all of that is a lesson in the Old Testament to teach us that you can't approach God without an intercessor. Jesus Christ right now is that intercessor. Why can't we approach God without an intercessor? Well, the hard message of Scripture is that we have sinned against God, we have disobeyed his word and law, and we have worshipped other gods, any other God beside him. And that God can be money, it can be a person, it can be anything. So we've sinned against God, we've committed idolatry, and the only way for us to be able to approach God now because of that sin is through a sacrifice, and that sacrifice is Jesus. Our great high priest intercedes for us with his blood, that sacrifice in heaven right now. So there is nothing that can accuse you, friend. If you're found in Christ, if you've put your faith in Jesus, Satan can accuse you. You could even accuse yourself. But in heaven, if you are a believer in Christ, you are not guilty. And the blood of Jesus Christ is the proof. It's the evidence. It's exhibit A. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, you know the Bible calls Jesus 
our advocate. You know what an advocate is? It's a lawyer. It's what it is. I'm serious. He is our defense attorney. He goes to God and he says, God, who is the judge, these are not guilty. And here's why. Because my blood paid for them. The debt has been paid. They owed you, but they don't owe you anymore because my blood paid the debt. That's what redemption means. That's what the word redeem means, to purchase. The redemption price for your guilty sin is the blood of Jesus, and Jesus right now intercedes for you at the right hand of the Father, declaring your innocence. You are legally innocent in the courtroom of heaven. Not because you are innocent, but because your sins are paid for. Isn't that fantastic? There is now no accusation. What can separate you now from the love of Christ? Nothing, Romans chapter 8. You want that kind of love? Oh, I've been burned by girls. You guys, have know, you guys know it, right? So have you. Some of you have been burned by husbands and wives. Dads have left you. But there's a, there's a good dad, a better bride, who will never do it. You want to know why? Because he purchased you with his own blood. And he promised to love you to the day that you die and receive you into heaven, innocent, completely flawless. Fantastic. That's because Jesus Christ right now, our attorney, presents to God the Father his own blood pleading your innocence. It's done. It's gone. Oh, amen. So he acts as a priest to the church. And number six, he is preparing a place for his people. He's preparing a place for his people. Christ ascended to heaven so that this place would be both prepared for his bride's arrival and that her arrival would be assured. Okay? He's not on a construction crew. That's not what this means. John chapter 14, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. Um, will I not come back to you again and receive you unto myself, right? He's not, he doesn't have nails and a tool belt. He's not building you a house right now. That's not what it means. What it means is he's interceding for us. He's establishing our innocence. He's reconciling us with God by presenting his blood to him. And when he returns, he returns to a, to a church, to a people who are innocent, who have been declared righteous by the king of heaven. That's what happens when he comes back. He has not left us alone, friend. He has not forgotten you, and he will not forget you. His appearing yet to come is coming. It's imminent, it's personal, and it is our hope. And what does imminent mean? This is our next section. i got to blast through this because of a stinking installation. It just took all the time away. (laughs) Right? So it's, it, Christ is coming back. That's what he's doing now. And he's coming back. And his coming back is imminent. That means it, is, it could happen at any moment. There is not one event that God is waiting for to happen before the return of Christ. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you don't expect. Revelation 22.20, I am coming quickly. And even in 2 Peter, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing, and following their own evil desires, they'll say, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it is. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. 
With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It is coming, friends. We don't know the day or the hour, but it is coming quickly. It is coming at any moment. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, it will happen when you don't expect and you neither know the day or the hour. So we can put away the books that say why Jesus is returning in 2020. The Bible does not say anything of the sort. We don't know when he is returning. We do know that he is returning and that he is returning quickly. His return is personal, it is visible, and it is bodily. In other words, we will actually see him with our eyeballs come back. It's not some kind of mystical, invisible thing that's already happened. Acts 1, remember, says that just as you saw me go up, you will see in the same way I will come down. Revelation chapter 1, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Mark chapter 13, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. They're going to see him. It's a a personal, visible, and bodily event. They'll see him come with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds. So what we see here is that the person of Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, who, who ascended to heaven, is personally returning in his resurrected body, and will be seen by all people. Jesus even said in Mark chapter 14, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? He said, I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. You know what they did? Listen to what they said. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard this blasphemy. Who do you think you are? They knew exactly who he was saying he was. He was saying, I'm the ancient of days. I'm the creator of heaven and earth. That's what it meant that he was coming on clouds. That was a picture of his deity, his majesty. He was saying, I'm God, and I'm coming back, and I'm, and I'm going to judge all things. So they, the priest looked at this man and said, you're insane, and you need to die. That's why they killed him. But his return is personal, visible, and bodily. And finally, his return is that which we need to fix our hope. We need to fix our hope in loss. We need to fix our hope on this event in our trials. We need to remember that all of it is fixed. All of it is corrected. All of it is settled when he comes back. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the next age, the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, if you are in Christ, your citizenship is in heaven and your master is coming back quickly. Philippians chapter 3.20. Oh, do we live like that? Are we ready? Are we eagerly awaiting the coming of the majestic Christ? 
so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect. Friends, I know that life um, for everyone brings trauma and loss and grief. And these things result in fits of insecurity and fear, triggering all sorts of behaviors to sort of medicate ourselves. Jesus' prescription is simple. Believe in Christ and fix your hope. Sober up your thinking by remembering something very simple. He's coming back. He's coming. And when he comes, we'll see this in weeks to come, the dead will rise, his judgment will be final, and his coronation complete. His crowning. Amen? Let's pray. God, we come to you and we thank you, Lord, that Jesus is coming back. We thank you, God, for this great gift of grace. If you don't know Jesus Christ, would you first put your faith in what he did for you when he came 2,000 years ago at his first coming? He died for sinners. He took the wrath of God towards sin and died for it. And then he resurrected from the dead so that you would resurrect to new life too. He's what you've been looking for, friend your whole life. Come to Christ. Trust in him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. Anyone who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Friends, that's the message of Scripture. Come to him. Believe in him. Trust him right now. And he'll prepare a place for you too.